This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website, theresidentreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Welcome back to Quick Hits on The Resident Review. I'm Tori Wickenheiser, and I'm joined by Rosie Tillis. And today we are really excited to continue our Quick Hits series, preparing for the in-service, and we'll be talking about cosmetic facelift. And we're just going to cover it all. We are. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about um, the aging process and changes that occur in the skin during aging. Then we'll talk about some non-surgical options we have, um, and then some anatomy more related to our surgical interventions. And and then we'll talk about anesthesia, specifically brow lifts and facelifts. And then we'll talk about some complications of all these procedures. We got a lot to cover, but we're going to, we're going to do it. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. So we'll start just talking about, um, you know, the things that lead people to coming into the office to talk about procedures like facelift, brow lift, and skin rejuvenation in general. Um, In terms of skin changes that come with aging, it's thinning of the epidermis and dermis, loss of sebum production, a decrease in melanocytes, and then loss of the dermal papillae and loss of that dermal epidermal junction. There's overall a decrease in collagen and elastin, a decrease in glycosamine and glycans, Langerhans cells, and keratinizing cells. And type three collagen increases and type one collagen decreases. And this leads to the cause of fine wrinkles. The classic signs of facial aging is loss of volume or deflation of the fat compartments of the face in conjunction with attenuation and laxity of the anatomical retaining ligaments of the face. When the retaining ligaments become attenuated, it causes the appearance of skin laxity, um, i.e. like deepened folds, like the nasolabial fold, the tear trough and jowls, and then the bony maxilla and infraorbital rim overall like protrude and are not as obvious. Marionette lines are deep creases from the corner of the mouth to the chin, and those specifically are caused by volume deflation in combination with intact mandibular ligaments that give rise to those specific lines. And then an obtuse cervicomental angle, so greater than 120 degrees, can result from loose and excess skin, low position of the hyoid bone, excess preplatismal or subplatismal fat, and then a retrodisplaced or small chin. There are also some congenital causes of skin laxity and aging. Um, so I'll just briefly go through those. Cutis laxa is an autosomal dominant, autosomal dominant genetic disorder with variable inheritance and expressive patterns, but the underlying defect is poor elastic tissues due to degeneration of the elastic fibers. Those patients can still undergo elective plastic surgery without issue. As opposed to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, this includes uh, many subtypes, over 10 different types of inherited disorders, but generally the clinical presentation includes skin skin laxity, hyperextensibility, excessive thinness of skin, joint hypermobility, and aortic aneurysms. In general, wound healing in these patients is poor and elective procedures uh, generally shouldn't be performed due to that risk. 
Elastoderma is pendulous skin laxity and initially involving the trunk and extremities that progresses to involve the entire body. Their wound healing can be unpredictable and thus elective surgery is not recommended to be performed. Progeria is an autosomal recessive disorder of unknown cause, but the findings include premature aging, lax and excess skin, growth retardation, and cardiac disease. Wound healing also in these patients generally is poor and is associated with premature death, um, this syndrome in general, so not a great operative candidate. Um, Werner syndrome is an autosomal, autosomal recessive a uh, disorder that's characterized by pigmented, indurated, and plaque-containing skin. Uh, also has associated osteoporosis, muscle atrophy, growth retardation, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. And they are also uh, associated with poor wound healing and small vessel angiopathy, which are important to consider if you have a patient presenting for surgical treatment. So basically, the only one that you should do surgery on is cutis laxa. That's basically what it sounds like. Okay. All right. Moving on to some non-surgical treatments for some of the skin laxity and skin changes that we see in aging, particularly for the obtuse cervical mental angle and platysmal fat. You can use Kybella, which is also called, uh, which is also deoxycholic acid. This works by disrupting the adipocyte cell membranes. You can also use tretinoin, which is used for fine rhytids. And the mechanism of tretinoin is increased epidermal and dermal thickness, which if you remember the decrease in thickness of the epidermis and dermis is what characterizes skin aging. So we're reversing that. You also have an elimination of dysplasia, atypia, and microscopic actinic keratoses, a uniform dispersion of melanin granules, an increased collagen and glycosaminoglycan deposition in the papillary dermis, and thinning of the stratum corneum. Tretinoin inhibits the AP1 transcription factor but it can also cause early side effects of erythema, photosensitivity, and desquamation. So you can tell patients who are on this to space out their applications in the beginning. Um, moving on to some anatomy, we're gonna talk a lot about the aesthetic um, analysis of the face, also the specific nerves that run through a lot of our surgical fields, and then the layers of the face, which we are addressing when we do our facelifts. So aesthetic analysis of the face can be simplified by dividing the face into equal horizontal thirds and vertical fifths. The upper third includes the forehead and brows from the anterior hairline to the glabella. The middle third includes the mid-face eyes and nose from the glabella to the subnasality point. The lower third includes the lower cheeks, jawline, and neck and goes from subnasality to the menton. Width of the face can be divided into those fifths. And these are divided by lines dropped from the lateral canthi and the medial canthi. Moving on to the nerves that run in our surgical planes, the greater auricular nerve supplies sensation to the earlobe, conja, posterior auricle. And its course is that it exits the deep neck along the posterior border of the SCM and then travels parallel and posterior to the EJ. And one centimeter cranial, it bifurcates into the anterior and posterior branches. McKinney's point is important for the great, greater auricular nerve, and this is the location where the greater auricular nerve crosses the mid-transverse belly of the SCM, and this happens 6.5 centimeters below the caudal edge of the bony external auditory canal. Another point that we're tested on is the most superficial location, 
um, but this is McKinney's point, it's approximately one third of the distance from the EAC to the clavicular origin of the SCM. So the next nerve we'll talk about is the temporal branch of the facial nerve, and this lies just deep to the temporal parietal fascia. The facial nerve innervates the mimetic muscles of the face and exits the stylomastoid foramen. The main trunk can be found one centimeter inferior and posterior, midway between the tragal point and the posterior belly of the digastric. It then splits into five branches, including the temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal, and cervical, or if you remember step one, to Zanzibar by motor car. And all of the branches are rise except for the temporal and marginal mandibular. The <laughs> you know, why don't we give Rosie a break? <laughs> We're taking <laughs> through the many, many branches of those nerves. Um, mm. And I'll talk briefly about the different presentations of injury to the cervical branch and marginal mandibular branch. Um, when they are injured, both um, lead to weakness and lip depression, meaning like when you're smiling, um, it's harder to depress your lower lip. Um, and then if you have a cervical branch injury, patients will still be able to purse their lip if they're trying to basically like make a pouting face. But um, that's given that that's because the mentalis and orbicularis oris are still intact. But if the marginal mandibular branch is out, those patients will have lip depression weakness and they will be unable to invert the lower lip when pouting. So they'll basically have an impaired pout and an impaired smile, whereas the cervical branch um, injury will just be an impaired smile, but an intact pout. Um, the marginal mandibular nerve itself is located deep to the SMAS. It can travel as low as one to two centimeters below the mandible along its entire course. The spinal accessory nerve or cranial nerve 11 if injured, uh, this nerve, because it innervates the SEM and trapezius muscles, um, it will basically lead to like a drop shoulder drop. Um, and just taking you through the course, um, it exits the cranium through the jugular foramen. It passes deep to the styloid process and under the SEM, and then it exits at the posterior border of the SEM within two centimeters superior to the great auricular nerve, and it's tightly sandwiched between the skin and muscle fascia, i.e. the lateral neck. So think about the spinal accessory nerve in a sandwich in the lateral neck, and there you go, ready, ready for the in-service. Um, <laughs> the auriculotemporal nerve, it innervates the external auditory meatus, the upper helix, and temporal scalp, the SMAS, or the superficial musculoaproneurotic system, is superiorly to inferiorly, the superficial layer is basically continuous. So it goes galia to temporoparietal fascia, the cheek smas to the platysma and superficial cervical fascia. So all of those layers at their various spots in the um, face are all contiguous with the smas. Um, the deep fascial layer, so deep to the SMAS, includes the cranial periosteum going to the deep temporal fascia, the parotidomasseteric fascia, and deep cervical fascia. The deep temporal fascia splits into two layers, which surround the superficial temporal fat pad and attach anteriorly and posteriorly on the zygomatic arch. They are continuous with the anterior and posterior parotidomasseteric fascia respectively. And I feel like 
I deserve an award for saying parotidomasteric fascia three times, correct? I think so. I think so. <laughs> it's called the SMAS Award. Congratulations. The SMAS Award. Yay. This is Tori Wickenheiser. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been too long. Okay. Anesthesia. So anesthesia in these facial procedures, you can do intravenous sedation. This decreases the risk for deep venous thrombosis. Um, although it can be associated with an increased operative time. And often surgeons will inf infiltrate the area with tumescent solution for both anesthesia and hemostasis. The complications of tumescent solution can include facial nerve weakness from the residual effect of the local. And this can take several hours to wear off. So you will see question stems that describe a patient who's just gotten a facelift with minimal edema and facial nerve weakness. And it's reasonable if someone you know has a tumescent and you've had a clear dissection plane to just try and observe them. And then if it continues after the local anesthetic should have worn off, then you are concerned that there is a, um, a lacerated nerve or something similar. And for ASPS task force, the guidelines currently recommend um, that these procedures be limited to less than six hours and begin early in the morning to allow for monitoring afterwards. And an increase of over four hours of surgery is associated with post-operative nausea and vomiting, but it does not increase the risk of any other major complications. So moving on, we're going to talk first about brow lift. Um, so we'll go by the incision and approaches for brow lift. Um, for an endoscopic brow lift, this does not address the forehead length and can result in inadequate removal of glabellar muscles, resulting in early recurrence of glabellar lines and frowning action. The endotemporal approach to brow lift is useful for patients with thin hair or lateral ptosis. The pretracheal, 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 there we go. Thank God Rosie is here, um, <laughs> is appropriate for patients with a long forehead. The transcoronal approach is most useful in a patient with a short forehead and deep rightids. And then the transpalpebral approach does also does not address forehead length. So, um, quite a few that do not address the length of the forehead. So the um, endoscopic and the transpalpebral both do not. The pretracheal is appropriate for patients with a long forehead. I was, for some reason, when I, I, I don't know, I think, I think there was a meme about this, but I think of pretracheal approach when I think of Kristen Wiig and that tiny hand skit, and she has that like massive forehead. <laughs> Well, if there isn't about it already, there will be a meme about it tomorrow. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Check out our memes on the resident review. On our memes for knowledge and fun. Um, back to brow right. lift. Um, complications include numbness of the central forehead, and these are typically related to traction injury of the supraorbital nerve. Um, so a division of cranial nerve five V one distribution, um, and. We're moving I'm on facelift. Let me, let me do these facelifts. You've done enough incisions and, and complications here. So for facelift, there are some general methods that we can talk about the differences between. So you'll want to make an artfully placed incision, which follows the anatomic contours. You will do skin elevation to allow access to this mass. And there are different methods for tightening this mass, but you'll do elevation and then you can do plication or resection and rotation and then re-anchoring of this mass. You'll have redraping of the soft tissues after that and then careful skin closure with minimal tension on the earlobe. And we'll talk about why that's important in a bit with the complications there. Um, so tips and techniques, 
So a short scar rhinodectomy includes the minimal access cranial suspension technique. You may need a post-auricular incision in patients with significant skin access because an excess vertical fold of skin can result in the lateral neck if you don't do a skin excision there. A high SMAS technique divides the SMAS transversely at the superior most portion of the zygomatic arch. This can be performed safely as the frontal branch of the facial nerve runs in close proximity to the periosteum of the zygomatic arch. And then post-auricular incision should follow the hairline of the posterior scalp to allow excess skin to be removed without creating irregular and misplaced lines. A SMAS tightening increases the longevity of, the re of a result. This is just opinion-based and there's no conclusive evidence, but it does um, appear to decrease tension on skin closure. However, it puts the facial nerve at greater danger than a skin-only facelift. And then one of the things, one of the interesting things we've been tested on is the use of fibrin blue, which has demonstrated to decrease the rate of ecchymosis, edema, seroma, and prolonged induration in these patients. For secondary rhinodectomies, these patients are typically older and have more or have more, help me out, have more comorbidities. Comorbidities. That's the doctor. Um, <laughs> typically, you'll excise less skin because this is the secondary facelift and the SMAS is generally thinner. The interesting part about this is that technically you have performed a delay phenomenon by preemptively elevating in their primary rhinodectomy. So vascular compromise of the skin flaps are, is less likely. In patients with severe facial fat atrophy, you can do some fat grafting, but only jowling and neck laxity can be improved with the facelift. So you must also reverse the signs of fat compartment atrophy to achieve facial rejuvenation, which means usually more dissection like a facelift. And we were tested on that last year because it was like, what procedure would you like to add to this patient's facelift to help them look more, you know, rejuvenated? rejuvenated. And the options included fat grafting to address the fat compartment atrophy. Um, I think the, one of the other options was to do a peel, which would really only address like fine lines and small wrinkles, but wouldn't overall make a big difference in terms of the facial rejuvenation outcome. Um, so I think their point was if you just remove skin, but you don't address like the areas of hollowing with fat grafting, then you're never going to get as good of a result, or at least if you're going to add something, add that. Mm -hmm. Because the, the problem is actually volume loss. Yeah. All right. Let's, Let's see. complications. Get into complications. Which, of which there are a few. Um, Cover. So, Let's see. I'll go for earlobe numbness for 500, please. Um, <laughs> earlobe numbness is often tested on. It is from great auricular nerve injury. You can have neuropraxia, suture entrapment, axonotmesis, or neuromesis. And if you notice these during surgery, obviously you should repair them, but like we talked about, there can be some numbness after surgery and specifically if it's neuropraxia. So you can also give it time to resolve if you didn't notice anything was specifically cut. The majority of these, the, the numbness should return after about, the feeling should return in about six months. And then after six months, you may want to consider re-exploration for anesthesia with allodynia. Next up is hematoma. So this is common and a common early complication following a facelift. And it can be due to resorption of epinephrine in the early post-op period, which causes hypertension and subsequent hematoma, much likely and much likelier in hypertensive patients. So patients should take their blood pressure medicines in the morning 
And then you should proceed with some significant intraoperative and postoperative hypertensive control. And usually, you know, hematomas will present as pain, firm swelling, and bruising within six hours. All right. I think it's time to give Rosie a break. She's <laughs> quite right. a bit of facelift information. I'll carry forward with some more complications. So we'll go on to injury to the great auricular nerve. This has a rate of 6%. Obviously the goal would be to avoid injury. So the technique for that is raising the platysma at the anterior border of the SEM and your SMAS sutures should be placed posteriorly to McKinney's point. Phrase syndrome uh, is also another complication that's been described. It's gustatory sweating after basically aberrant reinnervation of the cutaneous sweat glands after disruption of the auricular temporal nerve branches. And this is much more likely in the case of a parotidectomy, but can occur in facelift as well. Sp the spinal accessory nerve, cranial nerve 11, we I feel like we just talked about, um, yeah, but certainly did. As we talked about, it innervates the SEM and trapezius muscles, and this is much more likely to be injured with a lateral neck dissection. If you're noticing deficits there, you want to observe until it's been a bit, been about a three months out from surgery. If they have no clinical recovery at that time, then they should undergo evaluation with an EMG or nerve conduction study. And this should be followed by surgical exploration with neurolysis repair or grafting, depending on the injury. A salivary leak can occur from direct injury to the parotid gland. This is typically self-limiting. Uh, treatment includes minimalizing, minimalizing, minimizing oh. <laughs> salivary secretions, um, regular percutaneous drainage, a temporary drain placement, compression, antihistamines, scopolamine patches, bland diet, and Botox injections directly into the gland can also be used. Um, also, like we talked about in terms of differences between branches of the facial nerve injury, marginal mandibular nerve injury can occur. This, like we talked about, involves an inability to depress the affected side of the lower lip smiling, um, and also will reduce your ability to pout. Um, this can be attributed to traction cautery, sutures, or surgical division. Spontaneous recovery is typically noted around three to four months. And so you should observe rather than obtaining studies, re-exploring patients or anything like that for the first three to four months. Um, the abnormal side is the side that does not depress. Uh, and like we talked about, um, you want to observe this, but you can do some treatment by placing Botox injections on the contralateral side after six months for any remaining asymmetry. So you can do Botox to help balance out um, the higher contralateral side. And then anatomic deformities that can result from facelift. Um, so you can have pixie ear deformity. This results from excessive trimming of the flap adjacent to the base of the earlobe. And you can fix that with VY or readvancement of the facial flap. Um, or you can just avoid it in general. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you can also get Joker's lines, uh, which are submalar hollowing. Alopecia can be caused by excessive, excessive traction. Uh, tracheal blunting can also be caused by excessive traction. And then wound healing issues are a complication of every surgery, but um, can also be a complication of facelift. These should initially be managed with local wound care. And then later on, you can readvance and perform scar revision once the wound has completely healed and skin laxity has returned. And then we have a always tested on that. Yeah. Like something about a smoker getting a facelift and now they have a wound healing problem. So you want to wait until it's totally healed 
and then stress exactly. about it. And then stress. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. No stress. Stress. No stress. No stress. A couple of miscellaneous topics um, that have come under the umbrella of facelift. So peels at the time of facelift, in general, it's safe to perform peels at the same time that you're doing a facelift in areas where you're not undermining the skin. So generally speaking, you can rely on the T-zone, um, like the upper forehead, dorsal nose, uh, and sort of like general T-zone area or any place where you're not undermining. And then radio frequency facial rejuvenation. So this includes ultrasonic waves, lasers, and cryolipolysis. This is a, there are varying techniques, um, but uses high frequency alternating electrical currents to basically alter biological tissues. It causes collagen remodeling and neocollagenesis, and that's basically through a controlled wound healing response. So ultrasound disrupts tissues with sonic vibrations, cryolipolysis, um, itself reduces subcutaneous fat without reducing other tissues. And then, you know, just a smooth transition to aging after <laughs> facial transplant in case you're seeing any of those patients, but aging after facial allotransplantation is from a reduction of bone and non-fat subcutaneous soft tissues over time as compared to the different, um, kind of pathogenesis that we went through with normal facial aging. Mm-hmm. And there we have it. Has anyone who has had a face transplant in the, in the process of aging? I feel like everything's so new. I I don't know. I guess you've got a plan for the future. You got a plan for the facelift. Always thinking about the facelift. Always. Um, okay. We have some, we have some quick facts here. So some quick facts for cosmetic facelifts injury to the cervical branch of the facial nerve causes impaired smile on the affected side side preserve lip aversion. So pouting via the mentalis. But injury to the marginal mandibular nerve causes inability to depress the affected side and the inability to avert the lip or pout. Skin changes associated with aging were commonly tested on these. Thinning of the epidermis and dermis, loss of sebum production, and a decrease in melanocytes. You also get a loss of the dermal papillae and a loss of the dermal epidermal junction. AIDS mass tightening lift increases the longevity of the result and decreases the tension of the skin closure but it does put the facial nerve at greater danger than a skin only injury to the greater auricular nerve happens in about 6% of cases to avoid this injury, raise the platysma at the anterior border of the SCM to avoid seeing the greater auricular nerve where it pops out of the SCM and smash sutures should be placed posteriorly to McKinney's point. And that's wow. all we have folks. Hope your faces are lifted. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, share with your friends we're available everywhere and our memes are fire so yeah keep listening with us and help us help you prepare for this <laughs> and by that i mean help us prepare for the end of this we need help, we need help. thank you as a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient the more options you have at your fingertips the better natrell is one of the portfolios available to you To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.